All right, we got a ton of ground to cover tonight. We're going to do our best to do it. This is an overview, so we're not going to do, go in and do the hard kind of exegetical work. Uh, for instance, in chapter 12 on identifying who the woman and the child and all that and the dragon is, we're going to assume that you know that that's Israel and Christ and, uh, and Satan. Uh, we did that the first time around. That's really not kind of what we're going for on this time around. So if you have any questions about all those kind of nitpicky little things, well, it's not nitpicky, it's scripture, but on those technical details, then you can go back and check out the first installments uh, that we covered here at the end of chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12. But tonight, the tide of the war turns. Finally, Elijah and Enoch, the two witnesses, and Kali for Enoch, man, his time's been coming for a while now, well over 4,000 years at this point, uh, and we're not even close uh, to these events yet, at least, um, we're at least three and a half years away, bare minimum, probably a little bit more than that, uh, and um, the events of the two witnesses in chapter 11 are truly a global phenomenon. Scripture says that the whole world watches them bearing witness to the gospel. It watches if anyone would try to stop them or attack them, fire comes from their mouth and consumes them. And when the term of their ministry that was ordained by God is up, the whole world watches them be slain in the streets of Jerusalem where their bodies lay for three days while the planet has a big Mardi Gras, Merry Christmas type party. They're buying gifts for each other. They're slinging beads. It's pagan mayhem from one end to the other. And then the Lord raises them from the dead and catches them up to Himself in heaven. And at this point in time, everything changes. Chapter 11, verse 15 Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sat on the thrones before God fell on their faces, and they worshiped the Lord, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. Notice there is no is to come here which is the normal pattern, <clears throat> who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and began to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged and for the renewing or the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and saints and those who fear your name, both small and great, for the destroyer, for the destroying... Sorry, guys. <clears throat> I left my glasses at home. I don't know. And I had real ones coming. Okay? <laughs> I haven't had the exam yet, but it's happening in what? Two weeks? Two weeks. Yes. <laughs> I'm to the point now where I can't tell whether wearing the glasses gives me more of a headache than not wearing them. So, anyway. <clears throat> the time has come for, the re for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. And then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of His covenant was seen within His temple. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. The contents of the seventh trumpet is a proclamation 
of the beginning of the reign of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. The two witnesses was a global phenomenon and Jesus on evangelism as it refers to the day of the Lord said in Matthew chapter 24 verse 14 and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. Well here in verses 15 through 19 at the end of chapter 11 we see the contents of the seventh trumpet, the third woe and that the end is at hand. There are loud voices in heaven that says our Lord, the Father, and His Christ reign eternally. And Christians say when. The kingdom of this world, in verse 15, has become the kingdom of our Lord. And at that point, Christians say, what? This is a little bit of a funny statement on its surface. You might say to yourself, I thought that our God has always reigned. I thought that this kingdom has always been His kingdom. You could quote places like Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, where the author of Hebrews says that He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. And after making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Or Peter in Acts chapter 2 and verse 36 where he said, Let all the house of Israel know therefore for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So what do we have going on here with this statement that the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there came loud voices in heaven saying the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. The reality is, is God in His sovereign authority is temporarily allowing rebellion to reign among both angels and men. God currently allows, by consent of His sovereign will, this world to be ruled by Satan's agency. You might compare it to a vassal king. This should not be unfamiliar to us. This is exactly what we've been studying over the last couple of weeks that Paul is speaking of in Romans chapter 9 when he spoke of Pharaoh and said, For this very purpose that I raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. In his sovereign authority, he raised up an evil man and allowed him to do evil things in order that his good purpose in salvation might be fulfilled. He even goes so far to say, just down the page in verse 22, God desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He prepared beforehand for His glory. God has endured this evil and allowed it to reign by consent with much patience. Right here in chapter 11, you see His patience coming to an end. We see it all through the New Testament. Luke chapter 4, Satan took Him up showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, in their case the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. 
But the kingdom of this world, days are numbered. For the Lord's patience draws to an end. There is goodness in God allowing temporary rebellion. It provides for the very theater of our salvation. And don't, you know, people get all twisted up with the quote-unquote problem of evil. If God's good, why is there evil in the world? Friends, I, I don't get twisted up about the problem of evil at all. Let me tell you why. I was evil. I was evil, and if he had not allowed my evil in patience to continue for a season, I would have never been saved. I would have been ended immediately. Romans chapter 11, verse 32, For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Amen. Man, you can't have mercy unless there's wrath. You can't have salvation unless there's something that you need to be saved from. And if there's ever a book that you see it in, well, the Gospel of John and the Revelation are the two clearest places. And I don't think it's an accident that the Lord um, inspired the same apostle to write both of them. Scripture looks forward to a day of consummation when the world will be ruled by Christ, not by the consent through a vassal, but directly in the manifestation of His power. And that is exactly what is being celebrated in heaven here at the end of chapter 11. That the time has come when his sovereign rule will not be in allowing these things to be raised up to show his power, but in the display and the manifestation of that power that destroys his enemies and brings reward to his enemies. People, man, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12. When Christ had offered for a single time sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Well, at this point in chapter 11, he don't have his feet on it yet, but they're dragging the footstool across the throne room floor. Matthew 24, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Or Daniel chapter 7 verse 13. I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man. And He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before Him. And to Him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And the response of the 24 elders is that they fall down and worship. They give thanks to the Lord God Almighty for taking power and beginning to, to reign. They praise the one who is and who was. But this is the first time in the Revelation that we see this particular little you know, grammatical device, and it's missing something. Everywhere else, he's the one who is and who was and is, you know, still wasing. We did that whole deal where he's just really stretching the Greek beyond what it can actually do. Who is and who was, there's no is to come because this is the coming. Amen. This is the, and listen, the, the, the coming is a series, I mean, this is a war. The coming is a series of events. But this is where the coming begins. They praise God for His wrath against the nations. Because they raged against Him. And golly, this is not the first time 
that the Holy Spirit has inspired a man to put this statement to pen. We sing about it all the time when he inspired David to do it the first time in Psalm 2. The rebellion that they rage against the Lord with is about to be manifest in open war against God. They praise Him for the judgment of the dead, for the rewarding of His servants and prophets and saints and those who fear His name, both small and great, as well as praising Him for the judgment of the dead in destruction of the destroyers of the earth. For the creation has been subjected to futility, according to Romans chapter 8. The subjection was caused by the rebellion of man and Satan, according to Genesis chapter 3. And even the creation groans to be let free. You know, one of the things that we see in Scripture, I think, that would probably make... I think if you had people... I think if you had people in the churches today praising God, and I'm not comfortable with this either. I'm, I'm not saying I am. But I, I think if when you look, if you just take an honest look at a lot of these prophetic scenes in Scripture and back in the Psalms, not just prophecy. And you, you look back to the Psalms um, and, and you look here and in Daniel and Isaiah and, and all of these places, man, if you had people today praising for like the wrath of God for the destruction of the nations um, to the degree that they do in Scripture, I think it would make most of us, myself included, relatively uncomfortable in that kind of a praise service. But it is most definitely a biblical model. The heavenly response to the kingdom of the world becoming the kingdom of our Lord and His Christ is that in verse 19, God's temple in heaven was opened. The ark of His covenant was seen within His temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumbling, peals of thunder, an earthquake and heavy hail. Any time that you have the ark of the covenant presented in the open Things are about to get serious. And that was true when you're talking about the ark that was only the shadow and the copy that was hammered out of Egyptian nose rings out in the desert. This is the one. This is the one that he showed Moses on the mountain and said, do your best to make it like that. The ark of the covenant is exposed. The ark, as seen in the testimony and the shadow, the copy of the law, was both the place of God's manifest presence and a place at which men were either justified or paid their debt by their own lifeblood to God Himself. Of course, this is reminiscent of the events following the death of Christ in Matthew 27 and Mark 15 and Luke 23. The ark exposed to men results in the consummation of the covenant. I mean, this thing is... The covenant made manifest. This is the mercy seat. This is the one, man, when, when that temple is opened and there it sets, man, it has the blood, the life blood, wet and living of Jesus Christ on it that is constantly propitiating our sins. I mean, it's, this is what we're talking about. Lightning. Rumbling, thunder, earthquake, heavy hail. All of these follow the opening of the temple because there will be reward for those who fear His name and to whom that blood has been applied and there will be destruction for those that don't. What you're about to see is the turning of the tide. 
up to this point in his sovereignty, God has, man, we're not even going to get close tonight. Up to this point, God in his sovereignty has allowed Satan to rule, kind of the ultimate expression of what he was doing in Pharaoh. I've raised you up for this very purpose. I have raised you up to buy time in which I will save my people and destroy my enemies. And now that's done. And it's time to come to the consummation. This near stalemate where I've allowed you to slowly creep and be pushed back and creep and be pushed back and now creep to the point that we have the ultimate expression in the Antichrist at hand. This thing that has served my divine purpose. The purpose is becoming complete. And when you're being raised up as an object of wrath and you've fulfilled your purpose, then guess what happens to you when I'm done with you? Up to this point, we've seen the increasing wrath of Satan. It's going to try to increase one more time. He will not go quietly into the night, so to speak. But what you see here is a is a quantum change in the attitude of the king towards the enemies of the kingdom. And if you're going to get a picture of what that looks like, you've got to go all the way back to the beginning of the war. And so, in chapter 12, verse 1, there's a shift. And another parenthetical section. It's going to reach all the way back to the beginning of the war and then bring us all the way back up to the current day of prophecy in chapter 11, the contents of the seventh trumpet and the third woe. But we're rewinding this story all the way back to the beginning. He's going to give you more basic details about the beginning. The closer he gets to to where we're at in chapter 11 with the blowing of the seventh trumpet, the details are going to get finer and finer and finer. A great sign appeared in heaven. Can you imagine, just just for a moment, if we can kind of do, you know, kitchen theology here for a second. Can you imagine what it's like to be standing in heaven, to be seeing the actual events that are occurring? Man, the, the seventh trumpet blows... This is the third woe. Man, you've got these, these elders that are together falling down to worship, proclaiming all of this stuff simultaneously. There's this, this roar of this great multitude that are all in, in, in perfect concert saying exactly the same things. And man, here it comes. And then all of a sudden, in the midst of this, like some kind of, you know, ultimate IMAX kind of thing, the Lord sets this picture in front of him. And, and that's literally what it means in, in the Greek, this, this great sign, this, this picture that points to something bigger. He's showing him a reality that lies behind the events of history. The great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, 
and on her head a crown of 12 stars. This is corporate Israel. I mean, these, these images are drawn directly from the dream that Jacob had about the sun, the moon, and the stars bowing down to him. This is Jacob and his mother. This is the 12 tribes. This is Israel. Like I said, we did all the exegetic, heavy exegetical work to prove that. Last time, you can go back and check it out. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and crying out in birth pains, in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of the heavens and cast them to the earth. Satan. The great dragon of old that took a third of the heavenly host with him in his fall. In the garden... When cursing the dragon, God said there will be enmity between you and the woman. There will be war. Literally hatred. Like at the and not 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 just kind of not the kind of way that we throw around like the term I hate this or I hate that, but hatred to the fullest extent that hatred can possibly exist on both sides. On both sides. And let me tell you something. Satan hates God as much as his being as created by God is able to hate God. And God hates Satan to an infinite degree that Satan can't even approach There will be enmity between you and the woman. Between you and her offspring. He will, you will strike his heel and you will crush his head. So here he is displaying that enmity. And let me tell you, Satan didn't want anything to do with Jesus. It says that His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore the child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Jesus Christ. Guys, the man, the, don't get me wrong, man. When God does stuff, he is accomplishing just more things than we can typically even wrap our mind around. And so we can talk about all that God accomplished by establishing national Israel, you know. I mean, one of the big ones, you know, you'd have to, you know, we can talk about Rahab, you know, we can talk about all that kind of stuff. Man, the point of national Israel, the big sovereign purpose was to bring forth the Christ according to the flesh. That's why they exist. She gave birth to a male child one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. 
But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Here we see Israel, the Christ child that she was ordained to bring forth according to the flesh, and Satan who would attempt to destroy him before he could ever ascend to his power. But he fails. Man, we see this, man, good grief. I mean, if you if you look back in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, all you see is the Lord having to miraculously preserve one descendant or one of Christ's ancestors after the other from the attempts of Satan to cut that line off. Even upon his birth, I mean, who knows how many children, how many little boys two years or younger that Herod had slaughtered just trying, just hoping that somewhere in the net he would catch him to. Yet he always fails. I love it in the Gospel of John. It says they they, they were enraged and they would try to seize him, but he slipped from their grasp. For 1260 days, for 1260 days, she will be nourished in the wilderness. The very midpoint of the seven years of the tribulation. When the Antichrist will break his covenant with Israel and halt temple worship and set up the abomination of desolation spoken of in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, and Matthew chapter 24. Verse 15, Jerusalem will be devastated. The Jews will flee for their lives, according to Matthew 24, 16. From the time that it begins, it'll last 1,260 days. Or, according to the Jewish calendar, 42 months, or a time, times, and half a time, three and a half years. This is the beginning of what is spoken of in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1. In verse 7, where it says, At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never been since there was a nation until that time. And I heard the man clothed in linen, he's an angel, who was above the waters of the stream, and he raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven, And he swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time, and that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. Man, Daniel, or Revelation chapter 12, verse 1 through verse 7, takes you all the way from the Garden of Eden, in those seven verses, takes you all the way from the Garden of Eden through the establishment of national Israel, through the attempt of Satan to devour the Christ, even while he was still a child, all the way up to exactly the halfway point of the seven years of the tribulation, when Israel will be swept away and nourished by God in the wilderness for three and a half years. The very consummation of the end of the age. The turning of the tide of the war. After this, everything is different. And we'll see why next week when we pick up in verse 7. We got half of it.
Toby, why don't you pray for us, man?